Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, University of Connecticut historian Cornelia Hughes-Dayton tells us about the history-changing discoveries she made while going through 18th century Massachusetts court records. Because of her find, historians now know more than ever before about Phyllis Wheatley, the poet considered the mother of the African-American literary tradition. A Historian Makes History, John Peters and Phyllis Wheatley Peters' Lost Years Recovered, coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. It's not very often that a historian's research completely transforms our understanding of a historical period, person, or event. But that's exactly what University of Connecticut historian Cornelia Hughes-Dayton has done with her groundbreaking archival research on the writer widely recognized as the mother of the African-American literary tradition, the 18th century poet Phyllis Wheatley. Professor Dayton joins us on Grading the Nutmeg today to tell us about her discovery and to unpack this history-making archival breakthrough. Nina, thanks for being here. It's a delight to be here, Walt, talking to with you about it. Let's begin with the basics. Who was Phyllis Wheatley, and why is she such a central figure in American history and literature? Well, the woman we know as Phyllis Wheatley, or Phyllis Wheatley Peters after she married, was caught up in the trafficking of the transatlantic slave trade from West Africa. We think she was born possibly in Senegambia, we're not really sure, and put on slave ships and arrived in Boston when she was about seven years old in 1761. And she acquired her name then, as so many Africans who were renamed by their enslavers, when a wealthy merchant John Wheatley and his wife, Susanna, purchased her, presumably on the ship in Boston, um, and brought her up in their house in in the center of Boston on, on King Street, now State Street. And the story is that they quickly, they had a daughter her age, Mary, and they quickly d- discovered that the young girl they named Phyllis, who was named for the slaver, the slave ship, which she arrived, had a real facility as a learner. And she learned English quickly. And uh, rather than be coerced to do the sorts of tasks around the house that um, enslaved girls and boys often were, uh, she was evidently brought up as Mary was and educated in Latin and uh, the poetry of the day, like Alexander Pope's poetry, And as a teenager, she became very proficient at writing poems in the favorite style of 18th century English poets. She she was really something of a child protege, wasn't she? She did her first poem at 12 or, you know, we think it was 12. Right. And and that was just the beginning. Right. And so we get this sense of her teenage life as being feted and admired and perhaps a bit objectified by the wealthy, educated white women, especially, but men too, of Boston, and taken into people's parlors where she would read. So the scholars talk about her performances. um, And it's hard for us to know, did she enjoy that? Did she feel, uh, as we might put it, exploited? 
but at least she was getting quite a lot of attention. And that led eventually to a book of poems being published of hers in 1773, when she was around 20 or 21. Now, it was really interesting that she, I I guess when she was around 18, a group I read of eminent Bostonian literati met together and kind of interviewed her and declared that she was capable of poetry. How nice of them, right? What followed after that was she went to London to have her poems published. Right. And well, what you mentioned, the examination of Phyllis Wheatley, is quite a contested incident in that um, scholars today feel that there wasn't actually an event where the 16 or 18 ministers and you know got together in a room and examined her the way you would a doctoral candidate. They think that perhaps more they examined the evidence of her poetry, perhaps her, you know, her handwritten poems, and heard her heard about her th- through the Wheatley. So, so we're not sure it's an event, but still, you're absolutely right that what we see there is the white people's suspicion that how could a girl from Africa, West Africa, have this sort of genius, as they called it, um, an ability to write poetry? So there was um, an effort in getting this book of poems uh, published to attest to their, their authenticity. So um, why, but of course, if, if we think about it, right, it's like blurbs today where someone of eminence writes a foreword for your book and says, I know this author and they're really terrific and this is why you should read it. Now, why did she not just publish in Boston? Why London? Well, we're not sure. Uh, it's a it's a mystery to me, and I know a little bit about the book trade, but not that much. But but evidently, Boston publishers didn't take up the idea. Now, I think that's because it was actually financially difficult to get a book published in the colonies at this time. People did it by subscription, meaning you had to sign up. <clears throat> tens or hundreds of wealthy people to say they would pay for the book ahead of time. And we know a lot of uh, well-known authors who tried to get their books published and didn't. So that must have been what was going on. It's not clear it's racial animus as just uncertainty about the financial situation. So she goes to London because the Wheatley's 20-something son, Nathaniel, is traveling to London on business and he escorts her. And um, while she's in London for just something like two months, it's a short time in a summer, she does find a London publisher. But it's particularly interesting because she's you know, housed, um, hosted by eminent English people, particularly in the evangelical Protestant community. And men of letters, Granville Sharp, the great anti-slavery activist, takes her around town, shows her the Tower of London, uh, and Benjamin Franklin meets her at this point, uh, but the Earl of Dartmouth, etc. cetera. Uh, and they really are taken with her, obviously enjoy conversing with her, Uh, And she's still enslaved at this point. And that's her legal status is as an enslaved person. And one of the things they do is they they give her. Yeah, go ahead. There was an article in The New Yorker about two years ago. I don't know if you, you, you may have seen it. It's about discovering the lost years of Phyllis Wheatley. So (laughs) (laughs) you you definitely should read it because it it resonates. This article says that 
Once her book of poems was published, she almost immediately became the most mm-hmm. celebrated and famous African-American in the British Empire. Do you agree with that? That may be the case, Walt. I, I would love to know the, see the evidence. For, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt it. I just, we'd, we'd like to, I would like to know how much was this trumpeted, say, in English newspapers and uh, magazines. I don't know that. You know, we always talk about her as the first. Right. Uh, right. African born woman to, to be published. Uh, as we know, there are other people of African descent like Equiano and Jupiter Hammond and others who, who wrote their narratives of their lives and got those published, but often later in the 1790s or so. So she really is extraordinary. It's her own poetry. Uh, and she's, she's only about 20 years old, right? I mean, she's right. still very right. young. There is this question while she's in London that at least historians talk about today about whether <laughs> through publication she could have earned her freedom in England. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think the the wonderful biographer of Wheatley, who's done the most work on reconstructing her life, Vincent Coretta, teaches English at the University of Maryland. He, I think, rightly uh, speculates that she had real bargaining power and leverage while she was in London. Um, and basically with Nathaniel Wheatley, the Wheatley son, she could say, I could stay in England and be considered a free person. It was right after the Somerset decision, which was a narrow legal ruling, but still suggested that uh, enslavers from the Americas couldn't take back their enslaved people if that person didn't consent. So she basically has leverage and she probably negotiated and said, I will come back to Boston with you, you know, Master Nathaniel, if, uh, if, if your father soon manumits me. Well, and uh, because, it, it, it is yeah. fascinating. Her book is published on September 1st of 1773 in London she is back in Boston by mid-October and writes to a friend saying, telling them that she has been freed. So this was a very rapid transaction. That's right. And, uh, you know, one of the mysteries with so many 18th century figures, but particularly African-American figures, is the missing papers we have, right? And so in that letter to Colonel Worcester, she says, my manumission, the instrument, meaning the manumission papers, has have been drawn up and a copy has been sent to uh, a famous lawyer in London who she spent time with. Um, And yet those documents have never turned up, you know, in the historical record. And she also says these papers, I forget the exact wording, but preserve my entitlement or right to my property. And now I think there she means partly the books, because one way authors dealt with trying to get some income is they brought with them from the publisher a lot of their books, and then they tried to sell them through friends. So she would send five copies, say, out to friends in Providence or Worcester, Massachusetts, and tell them how much to sell them for. And then they would send the money back to her. So this sounds like she is really taking agency over her kind of her reputation and her career, and that she's taking advantage of the possibilities that freedom have just presented her with. What happens to her after she is manumitted? Good question. I mean, I have a a colleague, Peter Drummy, the librarian of the Massachusetts Historical Society, who likes to say before my article, there were 10 missing years in Phyllis Wheatley's life from 1773, you know, in the fall, as you say, when she's manumitted onward. Um, 
And my discoveries told us about three of those years, but that still means there are seven years where we don't know a lot. So in a way, um, we have a few letters that she wrote. We have evidence that she was writing, still writing poems. And in 1779, she and her then husband propose a second volume of poems to be published by Boston publishers, and it doesn't happen. And we think that each of them was living on King Street or Queen Street, which was a little extension of the street right near the courthouse in Boston. Um, And that I think they ended up at the same lodging house run by widow Susanna Sheaf. You know, some historians have suggested they were living together, cohabiting, before they married. I'm not sure. I think if this was a real boarding house with, you know, separate rooms, that's why they had the same address, perhaps. But again, we'd love to know more about those years, 1774, 75, during the occupation of Boston. At the start of the American Revolution, the British occupied Boston for about a year. And we know that she she went to Providence. Um and that maybe Nathaniel Wheatley did too. By then, her former enslaver, both both the husband and the wife, have died. And curiously, her enslaver, Nathaniel Wheatley, didn't leave her legacies in his will. You would think that maybe he had. So does that mean he thought, well, now she should support herself? We're just not sure. So again, there are a lot of questions about those years. So those are, even though... Historians have agreed on maybe the skeletal framework of what happened. Mm-hmm. There's still more that we don't know than right. we do know. We we do know she marries in on Thanksgiving Day in 1778. In 1779, she and her husband, John Peters, mm-hmm. one of many names that he used, they seek subscriptions for a new volume of her poetry. And then she effectively disappears. Right. So the biographers of Wheatley and um, many English professors teach Wheatley's poetry in their, you know, surveys of early American literature or their courses on African-American literature. We haven't known what happened in the three years from 1780 to 1783. And unfortunately, she died in Boston in 1784. But before that, she and her husband disappeared from Boston. We, you know, we know from tax records and the occasional um, other reference where they lived in Boston. They had rented lodgings when they lived there, as so many people did. But biographers have been stumped about where they went for three years. Now, would would this be a good place to talk a bit about Margareta Matilda O'Dell, who was yes. who was the first? A biographer of Phyllis mm-hmm. Wheatley Peters. Do scholars now call her Phyllis Wheatley Peters usually at this point in her life, or how how are they addressing her? I think that's up for grabs, Walt. I think I see some movement towards big towards referring to Phyllis Peters. That's how she signed she her name. She refers to from herself the, as Phyllis right. Peters, right? So. From the moment she marries, and that's what married you know women did in this era. Um, but of course, I understand the literary scholars are kind of um, might be unfair to say, but hung up on the name Phyllis Wheatley because because when she published her poetry, she was Phyllis, called Phyllis Wheatley, and, and the one and, volume of her poetry right. has Phyllis Wheatley as the exactly author, right right. But I think I think 
people are beginning to remember that we should pay attention to her marriage and her for the last four years of her life and try to figure out what those meant. So I think we can toggle back and forth, maybe. So so let's go back to Margareta Matilda O'Dell, who 50 years after Phyllis dies, publishes a memoir about her life. Right. It's fairly short. And Margareta O'Dell was a white woman who possibly was related to the White Wheatleys, uh, possibly had oral histories handed down through those white Wheatleys and their nieces and nephews. And recently, a scholar, Carla Glatt, I think, has done a wonderful article about Odell that tells us more about her than, than we used to know. Uh, so I'll leave that for people to look up. Uh, but uh, her own life was interesting and somewhat tragic uh, in that she lived, I think, the last several decades of her life in a sanatorium or an asylum. We hadn't really paid attention to that before. But Odell is a problem for Wheatley, people interested in Wheatley, because her account of Phyllis Wheatley is not only kind of a patronizing white person's account for the most part, but it also is full of inaccuracies. Now that Vincent Coretta, the great biographer of Wheatley, has kind of checked everything and corrected things, you know, you're almost tempted to throw out Odell's a memoir because there's so many problems with it. And you one know, of and, the and biggest the, problems yeah. was that she she sent everybody down the wrong trail that led to the putative disappearance of Phyllis Wheatley for years for 1780. Years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, she said they went to Wilmington, uh, Massachusetts, which is in as a Middlesex County, and that's not the case. So she got the the town wrong. Now, maybe, she, again, maybe she was misinformed. Maybe she did it deliberately. I don't know. But but more seriously, she portrayed John Peters, Phyllis, who, whom Phyllis Wheatley married, as a kind of con man, a neglectful husband, a uppity black man who liked to dress well and spend his money and basically gave the impression that he exploited Phyllis and abandoned her. And went uh, with, south. He, yeah, he, he yeah was just she got a, that completely wrong, too, What, where he went after his wife died. He, she depicts him as a kind of melodramatic cad, just bad in every way. And having sent everyone to the wrong town to find him, <laughs> uh, it left everyone in the dark for almost two centuries until this wonderful historian named... Nina Dayton <laughs> finds him. How did this come about? You know, scholars have looked for generations to find this answer, and yet you found it. What happened? Yeah, thanks for asking, Walt. I, I think this, for me and so many scholars, you just happen upon things sometimes, right? You're not looking for it, and it, it, you come to it. So for me, I was doing research on my current book project on how New Englanders faced what we would call mental health challenges, uh, mostly in their adult lives before there were psychiatrists and asylums, etc. Um, and I was combing through one of the richest sources for the 18th century on this, which are contested will cases that came before the governor and council. The governor and council in Massachusetts acted as the appellate court for probate matters. So let's say I die and leave a will. 
And then some of my heirs don't like when I <laughs> left them in my will, they might contest it. And they might say, well, her mind was wandering when she wrote the will. She was not of right mind. You had to say in your will, I am a perfect, I might be weak and sick and aging, but I'm a perfect mind and memory. And so people could use that as an excuse to um, to challenge your will. And then the probate judge had to decide and call witnesses. Uh, <clears throat> and then that whatever he ruled might get appealed to the governor council. And that's what happened in a case involving, it turns out, John Peters, Phyllis Wheatley's husband. Uh, but it happened in Essex County, the what we think of as the sort of North Shore Salem area of Massachusetts, not where Margareta O'Dell said. And the contested will case, which P John Peters was part of, turns out to give us a backstory about him and where he came from. Did seeing his name, was that the trigger for you when you saw John Peters? Was that the aha moment? I, I believe so. It's hard for me to reconstruct, yeah. but I certainly knew who he was. And um, he's not identified necessarily. This is These records begin in 1779 in the fall uh, as, a, as a person of color. And so Massachusetts court records aren't generally providing racial tags for people who were not perceived to be white, but they had earlier. Um, but I, I think I knew enough about Phyllis Wheatley's biography to know his name. So here is here is John Peters, this man who's been depicted by uh, you mm -hmm. know, by Margaret O'Dell, Margarita O'Dell as a just a terrible person. He turns out to be this I mean, his story by itself would be a fascinating history of an African-American in a white society in the 18th century. Tell us about John Peters. What a complex human being. Right. So we, we learn one thing we learn about him in much of this is that he was a frequent litigator. So when he lived in Boston, he uh, sued people who owed him money, and he was sued by some people. Uh, when he was an itinerant trader in the first year of his marriage with a white man, Josias Biles, traveling to Worcester County and Hampshire County, there was a law, at least one or two lawsuits that came out of that. And then when he was in Essex County, we find out that he was frequently in the courts. And again, in Boston, after his wife sadly dies. So that's one way that we can reconstruct his life. And there are other African-American men who appear frequently in the court records. So this is one direction that researchers are going to trace the lives, uh, Black lives in this, in this period. But we also learn from those records how many sort of vocational hats uh, John Peters wore. Uh, like many 18th century men to get on, he had multiple vocations. Um, and it appears that he was quite skilled at several things. Later in life, he listed himself as lawyer, physician, pintle smith, or which I think means the mender, a mender of bolts. He was a trader early on in his life. With Phyllis, he was a trader, a, a shopkeeper. So there are these, these many occupational hats that he wears. So much of the story of unpacking the missing years of Phyllis Wheatley hinges around John Peter's relationship with the family of his enslaver, John Wilkins, and his widow, Naomi. That in itself is a, is a fascinating story. Tell us about that. Yeah, so one of the unusual things that I'm, I'm asking people when I give talks about this, if they know of other cases, is that John Peters ends up being 
deeded 110 acres, the farmstead, by his former enslavers. And so my question is, how often did that happen? Cabria Baumgarten, Gardner of, of Northeastern University, was talking this morning at a conference in Old Newburyport about a couple who owned, say, two acres and built their own house. So that's that's the story I'm more used to, is free Blacks as small landowners and surviving in towns like Marblehead and Lynn. But John Peters convinces the widow Wilkins, his former enslaver when he was a child, to deed him basically the farmstead. And that that's a large amount of property. So just to go backwards a little bit, we learn that he had been enslaved by this white couple, John, Lieutenant John Wilkins and his first cousin who he married, Naomi Wilkins. We don't know who John Peter's parents are. That's something I'm hoping researchers might be able to find out. We know he had three brothers who lived in the Middleton area and used a different last name, the last name Francis. Uh, And so we'd also like now to know more about that whole family. And I think research is being done on that. But in essence, we can place John Peters in Boston in 1776. And by that time, he had been sold by his enslavers, the Wilkinses, and we don't quite know who uh, who enslaved him in between or how he got his freedom, but by se- he probably walked away, that would be my guess, or negotiated with his enslaver. So he ends up in Boston in 76. He uses a couple of different names for himself, settles on John Peters. And he renews his relationship with his, his uh, two enslavers, the elderly couple, and they don't have a son Out of their three children, tragically two died, and Naomi Jr., who remains, is either cognitively or otherwise disabled and lives with her mother. And so the couple decide that John Peters is the person who should help them run the farm and manage things. And after all, he grew up there, so presumably he knows all sorts of things about running a a farm. The widow has much confidence in him. And so did her husband before he died. Clearly, he has made quite an impression on this family. When he gets this large deed of land and the homestead in which the Wilkin family lived, he strikes a deal with the widow, Naomi Wilkins. And that that deal becomes the hinge of so much of your discovery, doesn't it? Yes, it's what we call a conditional deed, which means... um, She conveys him the land outright, two parcels, and then on the same day, he deeds it back to her, but on the condition that he wouldn't have to give it back to her unless he fails to perform a promise. And the promise is that he will support her comfortably for the rest of her life. So this is a caretaking arrangement. Um, And that's not altogether uncommon in New England. mm -hmm. I've seen those in deeds frequently where a father will deed over property to a son on the condition that he provides both living space and the upkeep for his parents until their death. So this seems to be a version of that, but it starts to go south pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a harrowing story. Uh, so they signed the deed on something like April 6th and on a- of 1780. And on April 27th, evidently, uh, John and his wife, Phyllis Wheatley Peters, moved from Boston to, into the ha- homestead, which we think was a, 
you know, two and a half story salt box kind of house. Uh, doesn't stand anymore, uh, but we can place it on the landscape above Wilkins Pond in Middleton, which is the town just uh, west of Danvers, Salem Village, uh, famous from the witchcraft trials. And the widow, again, has invited him to move his family into the house. And we don't know when she uses the word family if they had an infant. They'd been married for a little over the year. They might have had a child um, by then. But we haven't ever until now documented that they had a living child. Um, and so so they might have moved with a child. But presumably they brought the beautiful bound books that Phyllis had purchased in London. Um, they bought, they brought with them at least one mahogany table. Uh, so this is a blended household and it's a bit, it's a bit complicated because Naomi lives. Uh, her daughter has just died. She says, I was in a weakened, dis disconsolate state. And I asked him to, to do this, to move in with me, but she does have living with her, a free black woman, Dinah Cubber or Cooper, who was formerly enslaved in the household and knew John Peters from when they were younger. And so here we have at least four adults learning to share the household. And the intentions arise according to Naomi Wilkins, the widow, and her companion, Dinah Cover, because they testify later. By the time they testify, they've turned against Peters. So we have to be a little cautious about the testimony. But in essence, there's a rupture in August, a few months after they've blended the household, and the widow and Dinah Cover move out. And they say they're, they, they can't live with John Peters anymore. He's threatened Dinah. And from then on, in essence, I think the widow rallies many of her white kin and neighbors to make life difficult for the Peterses and eventually, through a lawsuit, eject him through an act of ejectment from the land, saying he's not fulfilling his promise to support her. And this this leads to just a, a nest of lawsuits. There Peter's suing to keep the land, the widow suing to get certain obligations that she says he owes her, and it, it goes on and on and on. But for a historian, I mean, it provided you so much material and a fair amount of information, both about the Peters family and about Phyllis Peters and her life during these missing years. Yeah, you're right, Walt. So I think in all, there are two probate appeals. There are six or seven lawsuits, and there are two criminal cases. Um, and all of those add up to something like 120 separate legal papers, uh, file papers, we could say, you know, writs, depositions, accounts, bills of costs. So these are the sorts of things that uh, I, as a legal historian, love to mine, uh, and they're quite valuable. Uh, they still leave tons of things unanswered, unfortunately. You know, we don't have direct testimony from either John Peters or Phyllis Peters because they couldn't be deposed uh, in these lawsuits. Um, we have how he questioned witnesses. So we sometimes get his counter narrative. Like, did you ever hear me say X that his opponents have accused him of saying something kind of nasty? And um, and then his his witnesses say, no, I never heard you say that. But that's, that's not the strongest kind of evidence, right? So um, the, I think the biggest conflict of interest that we haven't mentioned is the trespass uh, cases. So here he is, he's the owner outright of 110 acres of a working farm, and yet 
he doesn't control the livestock or the personal property because he's not the administrator of the estate. Uh, uh, Naomi's brother is. And so Naomi's brother arranges for men to come on to the farm at harvest time in August, in September and October, and take off all the apples, many, many this barrels is, this of is apples. This is right at the time that they would have been picking them. Right, in. exactly. So, so yeah. it's like they let John Peters do all the work, mm-hmm. and then they came and took literally yeah. took the fruits of the labor. And and all the corn. And then they tramp, you know, their oxen and carts trample his grass, by which he means his hay. So you've got at least three crops there that are seriously taken away from him or 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 damaged. And as my friends who are agricultural historians say, that's what you need to get through the winter. So in other words, there's there's real uh conflict over the farm itself and there there's yeah. definitely throughout this i mean there 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 are some class issues there are status issues but race is woven into almost everything that happens here and at one point there's a petition signed by 50 some members of the town arguing in favor of the widow's claims and against peters right so you know something people have asked us what's unusual about this case um uh, and in a way, Peter's litigation is not unusual in, in, that, in that whatever your status was, you had access to the court system. And we, as we see in Connecticut records, Massachusetts, et cetera, um, free black people can litigate. Uh, and, and sometimes they do. And they use that as a way to defend their rights, their property, um, et cetera. And Peter's does that. So that's not so unusual. What is unusual is this messy probate situation where he doesn't quite control um, all the property that you would expect him to control. And um, so indeed, Middleton is a small, impoverished interior town, and over 50% of the white male heads of household, one widow, signed petitions to the governor and council arguing that Peter should not be given control of the uh, personal property and administering the state, which, he, as he said, was only equitable. It, was, it it only made sense, all of this, if he could run the farm properly. And he couldn't run the farm properly if other men are coming, trespassing and rearranging and taking off the produce. So it's a very unusual situation in a way. Throughout this long court this series of court cases. Phyllis Peters is in the background and rarely appears at all. And yet you're able to analyze from the nature of the documents how she does figure into many of the things that Peters is doing. His approach to the management of this household, uh, you argue in, in, in this article, is in part to protect both the status and the uh, ability of Phyllis Peters to write. And also her presence, you posit, really poses some serious issues for the community. Right. Uh, you know, I think that within this household, there's a lot of conflict, it turns out. And um, some of that is between the women. In other words, the two women who had lived there for a long time, the widow and uh, Dinah Cubber, <clears throat> the free black woman, um, they really resent, it seems, uh, Phyllis Wheatley because she arrives as the celebrated genius. You know, her poetry, her books had been mentioned in the Salem newspaper seven times before, uh, over the seven years before this, you know, and she was called a genius. And 
We think she's quite a refined gentlewoman in her manners and her tastes. She's not a farm woman. She probably didn't know how to milk a cow and do the things that farm wives do and farm women. And the one thing, the telling thing that they, the two women say in their testimony is that John Peters would not allow her to be a cook, meaning along with us, that we had to do the cooking. And they're they're really irritated by that. And then further, Dinah Cubber says, and he wouldn't let me eat at the table at meals with his wife and my mistress. And this, there this some would tensions. seem to be something that, that Dinah Cubber had been used to doing, eating mm-hmm. meals with Naomi. So mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. Peters takes over the household, he mm-hmm. also redefines the social geography within that household in ways that mm-hmm are very discomforting to the widow Wilkins and to her former servant, now her companion. Companion. And Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to me to lie at the heart of this conflict. Peter's insistence that he now is the head of this household and entitled to operate as the head of the household. Right, and to set the rules, right? And this is what men were counseled in the advice books, right, to men at this time, is that you are the governor of the household and you have dependents, including your wife and the the adult women in the household, and they should obey you. Uh, And we know in practice, this is usually a negotiation. And many husbands and wives were effective partners, but that hierarchy was dictated by the conventions and the society. You know, one of the things that people have speculated on are are uh, Phyllis Wheatley's children. There hasn't been any real evidence before now of her having children, yet you did find some, didn't you? Yeah, there are two pieces of this Middleton, these legal papers that we found that tell us something about uh, this issue. Uh, There's never been any record of, say, baptisms, births, or deaths uh, of children for this couple, John Peters and Phyllis Peters. But in the Middleton dossier, first we learn that a young girl stayed as a nurse for a month, that's a long time, with Phyllis for Phyllis Peters in the first summer that she spent in Middleton. And that, to me, suggests that she'd had a pregnancy and either a miscarriage or a child born, um, because that, that's pretty typical. That's what we call women's lying in, in the colonial period. But then much more shockingly and tragically, two years later, in 1782, John Peters files a criminal complaint, very serious one, against Dinah Cover, the black woman a companion to Naomi Wilkins, accusing her of attempting to destroy the life of one of a child, an infant of mine. John Peters, infant. Um, And that's all we have. Literally, as I say, it's 26 words in a legal document. It never went to trial. Such a shocking statement. Right. Attempted murder. and, And yet Peters doesn't pursue it and it just goes away. And this isn't so unusual. You'd think it would be in an attempted murder case, but in an 18th century legal system, there were no prosecutors, really. Uh, <clears throat> there was a higher up one, but there's there's no police, right? And so it's really individuals bringing complaints against someone who they think um, stole from them or whatever, um, and then they need to pursue it. Um, and he just doesn't show up <clears throat> for the next hearing when they would need his testimony um, to to take the case to trial. Uh, now, maybe he and Dinah settled something. You know, we don't know what this means. Does it mean it was 
kind of inflated charge? Was there a sort of physical altercation between them where she dropped an infant or tried to hurt it? Uh, we, We just, we don't know what happened, except that it is the only small piece of evidence we have that Phyllis Wheatley Peters and John Peters had a child living at one point. And of course, she's in her 20s. It would be understandable that she was trying to get, that she was pregnant, that she had uh, a child born. And there is infant mortality in this time period. Does this mean that that infant did die, perhaps of an illness, in the next few months or year, and is buried on the Wilkins farmstead, which would be particularly kind of haunting since the Peters were not able to retain that land as their property. Is just another sign of how terribly conflicted the relationship mm-hmm. between the Peterses and the Wilkins household, or the Wil- you know, Naomi Wilkins and Dinah Cubber were. This was a because this was two years after the split, and they're still right. they have that much animosity. So right, very troubled household. Yes, no, and and we don't know, of course, how that relates to their younger lives, right? Of John Peters and Dinah Cover. Uh, people have said, well, might they have had a sexual relationship when they were children? You know, yeah, you teens. Um, is that where this animosity comes from? I, I don't particularly want to speculate in that way, but there's clearly uh, a huge current of conflict between these two figures. You definitely get the feeling that whatever's going on between them, it's personal and it's <laughs> it's not good. So... So, yeah, I think a bigger question that you asked, Walt, is sort of how did the community in general react to having Phyllis Wheatley, the poet, in their midst? And that's hard to see. Now, I've speculated this might be unfair in a way to Middletown, but if they, if the Peterses had moved to Andover, which is a town to the east, with its academies and many more um, highly educated households where people opened their households in in other records I've read to newcomers to lend them books, you know, the way Benjamin Franklin sort of got well connected by lending books and borrowing books when he met the governor of New York or whatever. But I have a feeling that in Andover, there might have been more receptivity to the Peterses because of Phyllis uh, Peters, Wheatley Peters' knowledge and skills and, you know, flair with words. But we can't see any of that happening in Middleton. Um, So, for instance, the congregational minister, Elias Smith, who had at some point in his life been an enslaver, um, there's no indication that he welcomed her into his house uh, and lent her books. Um, Now, an absence of evidence is hard to read. But he's the first signer, the top signer of that petition against the Peterses. And, and you can imagine the kind of conflict for for Phyllis Wheatley Peters, because she, in her poetry and presumably in her life, was really a very religious mm-hmm. uh, person, very, mm-hmm. very kind of devout and having having this minister of the local congregation, you know, being at the top of the list of people who reject their presence must have, you know, mm-hmm. well, we, you can only speculate, wonder how she reacted, but not what you'd want to have happen. 
No, and then there's the geography of the of the meeting house, right? There was a gallery up up above set aside for black people of color. And so you wonder, um, one assumes that uh, Phyllis Peters, a devout congregationalist in Boston um, who wrote an elegy for uh, Minister Samuel Cooper, uh, who baptized her, you know, she would have attended church, we assume. So did she initially sit in the Wilkins pew, uh, which, they, which they owned or paid for? Um, and then was she relegated to the upstairs pew for people of color? Did John go with her? We don't know much about his religious life or beliefs. Um, did they feel shunned? I mean, the only little clue, Walt, is that one of their few ally, white allies in Middleton, Joshua Wright, a blacksmith, he and his wife, the church records tell us, stopped going to church for at least a year around this time and they had to be kind of lured back and he gave excuses like, well, he's embarrassed about his clothes, which doesn't seem very convincing. Yeah. Um, so maybe there was quite a lot of ferment in the church uh, over one, all of this. One can imagine. It, it would be interesting perhaps to cross index that list of petition signers with the church membership roles or the church roles. Mm -hmm. um, but who knows the, so, after these years of conflict, John Peters loses and loses and loses, doesn't he? Does he win any of the cases? I think one of the seven cases he wins. Um, and, you know, people have asked me about this, too, which I can't quite answer. Is it racial politics? You know, is it is it the prejudice? Because these are white juries. Um and usually plaintiffs win. So he was a plaintiff in three of the cases, and yet I think he only wins in one of those. Uh, it's hard to tell because we don't have judicial opinions written down at this time. The judges don't say why um, they're giving certain instructions to the jury or whatever. So it's hard to tell. Although I would say he clearly loses the key case, the ejectment case, because the widow and her law fancy lawyers, they all have good lawyers, but can um, say he didn't fulfill the contract of, of providing her with food and delicacies every day. Uh, and then he says in answer, I tried to every day I offered them to her and she refused. So, but she has him in an impossible situation. And, and after having attained presumably in at the beginning of this move, having attained economic security and the kind of status he had strived for, it all falls apart. And and what happens what happens at the end? They end up back in Boston? Is that right. So we again we don't have a narrative of those exact days, but we know that they were ejected or the or the ejectment order would have been brought to Middleton by the Essex County Sheriff on something like September 6th, 1783. Um, now whether they took their possessions and left before that. So they didn't have to be unceremoniously, you know, physically removed. Uh, we don't know. Um, uh, but that's the end of their time in Middleton. Although some of these appeals of these various trespass and debt cases still continue and get resolved in January. But uh, we presume that the couple then moved to Boston. We, we don't really have documentation of that for another few months when John Peters was renting 
near the Charleston Ferry in the North End and asked to ask the, the selectmen to have <clears throat> a license to smell, sell small drams of liquor out of his house, which was a very typical way that shopkeepers, men and women, uh, earn some income. So they're back in Boston and life does not improve. Well, again, this is one of the mysteries, I guess. I would say an open question about Phyllis Wheatley Peters is did, I think biographers have thought that the all the wealthy and well-educated white women, especially who supported her as this, you know, kind of slave girl who could recite and create poetry on the spot and often offered it as gifts to elite whites who lost a child. So she, she was wrote a lot of elegies to young children that are very moving and she all would offer these as gifts. So she was very much part of, you know, a network uh, and even these poems got sent to uh, white elite families in Philadelphia and circulated there. So the one question is, did all those people abandon her when she married John Peters? Uh, that's sort of the impression we get, but I think I and others have some questions and think we should, keep looking for possible ties. So the story in a way is, uh, and it's true of too many uh, black figures who we study like Ona Judge Staines who you know, escaped from President George Washington's house and Erica um, Dunbar Armstrong has written a wonderful book on this, um, who died in poverty. You know? So it was very hard to make a living and, uh, so here they are in Boston, and we assume they're in rented lodgings, first near Charleston Ferry, and then at Phyllis's funeral in the West End, uh, opposite the very big Bowden family house. Um, how how but, soon or how long after the ejectment in Middleton does she die? Does she she died die? in, de in December of 1784, so about a, a year and two or three months. Yeah. And again, we're not sure if they had an infant. Margarita Adele said she was buried with an infant, but none of the existing records record that. Um, but um, the other salient fact is that that year and the following year, I think John Peters was in and out of debtor's prison in Boston because I think uh, these suits uh, <clears throat> in which you, if you lost, you paid some damages, but you also paid costs um, uh, and they added up. And I don't think he had enough personal property to sell and pay his debts. So he was in and out of debtor's prison. Um, and that's why some biographers said uh, he abandoned her when she died uh, he wasn't there, you know, and now we would think more sympathetically if you're in debtor's prison, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you are, I mean, until you can pay the person who has you there, you, you know, so it's not really his fault. Um, also, I speculate that at the time of her funeral procession, procession, 
he would have been given what was called liberty of the art to attend. It was only a few blocks from where the jail was. Uh, but we also don't have her gravestone. We, you know, we don't know where she was buried. Probably the granary burial ground, which you can visit today and see the Crispus Attics and uh, many revolutionary figures' graves. But there's no record of it, and that frustrates biographers. Um, and we think that she died of probably this asthmatic condition that she had uh, that was quite severe, evidently, throughout her life. The Wheatleys referred to it. One reason I think John Peters found and Phyllis found it attractive to go into the country. People thought that the fresh air, not the city air, would be good for her. And the, um, uh, so whether it was tuberculosis or pneumonia or one, one imagines it was a respiratory condition that led to her death. So now we know, thanks to you, about the lost years of Phyllis Wheatley Peters, and uh, we know much more about her husband, John Peters, than the, the stereotyped uh, mm -hmm. caricature of him that uh, Margarita O'Dell presented. Having worked on them and having uncovered this cache of information, how do you now see John Peters? That's one question. And the second mm -hmm. question is, what what now do we know about Phyllis Wheatley that we didn't know before? And how does that affect how we think about her? Two big questions, and I'm sorry to present them to you all at once, but. Well, they're great questions, Walt. You know, I think to me, John Peters joins um, a, a group of uh, a, grow a growing group, given all the research that's being done on African-American lives in New England, uh, of, of black men whose lives we can trace over many decades, and notably through court records. Um, and so I think there's, there, there's a biography to be written of John Peters, um, and you wouldn't want to ignore his wife in doing that, but his family, his occupations, how, what, ha what he did after Phyllis's tragic early death. Um, uh, so there's more to be done, uh, and that's exciting. Um, you know, I, I have raised the question of, I consider this a kind of serious case of harassment of, of African-American landowners in rural towns. And it's happening right at the time, 1780s, when slavery is definitively ending in Massachusetts, but also, you know, Vermont has passed a constitution saying there will be no slavery there, even though there are the a few people who are enslaved in Vermont. Um, so it's a, it's a time that we call like the first emancipation in New England, where other states, Rhode Island, Connecticut, passed gradual, gradual, gradual emancipation laws. So I'm wondering if some of this is some backlash by white people, not all white people, who really felt discomforted by uh, people of color who now there wouldn't be a color line between freedom and slavery, Etc. And I'm wondering if there are other incidents of this across New England around this time period. So I'm hoping that we'll find out more. Those are hard to find because they're masked in the records by trespass or other things. You can't often see them clearly. But I really wonder about that. And John Peters's history would fit within that. Another way to approach Peters would be to compare him to his three brothers. I was wrong in my article. I kind of collapsed two other brothers together. But um, 
two of them at least can be traced in litigation. So I think he's a good example of the fact that we can, we can, the, the archive is not completely silent on African-Americans in this period. <clears throat> now, what, what, what are new perspectives that we might have on uh, the literary figure, the poet, the, the, the black woman at the center of this, Phyllis Wheatley Peters? I mean, I'm really continuing, my research is continuing a thread that <clears throat> the wonderful poet and writer Honoré Fanon Jeffers began in her book of poetry published two years ago, The Age of Phyllis, where she has a lovely essay at the back on like looking, <laughs> looking for Phyllis as the wife of John Peters. And then and she wrote some wonderful poems imagining their love life, their love together, and stressing that let's trust Phyllis Wheatley. She would have had good reasons to marry, to choose John Peters. Let's not dismiss him as a problematic person. Yes, he was complex, we're learning, and multifaceted. So there's still lots we don't know, Walt, about their marriage and what effect this very harrowing set of years in Middleton had on them. Do you believe... I'm certain you hope, but do you believe there are more and more revealing records out there yet to be, you know, explored? Yeah, I think so. (coughs) Whether they're just adding small things around the edges or whether they're more significant is really the question. Tara Bynum, the wonderful professor of English from the University of Iowa, uh, who's commented on, on these findings, made the great point, I think, that scholars perhaps have not used the correspondence, the family letter collections of Salem families and Boston families, as well as we might to look for African-American lives. Because, you know, free African-Americans were totally entwined economically in account books and um, credit debt relationships, etc., with white people. So she thinks that, that if that we need to really look carefully for, you know, friendships, um, economic relationships. And I I sort of, I hope on on that score. For instance, some of Phyllis Peters' books that she owned and was given in London turned up with the wealthy Pickman family um, of Salem um, and then were given to Harvard or other libraries in the 19th century. So I really want to know how that happened. How did those books you know, we think that John Peters probably had to try to sell some of them. They were valuable, a really fancy edition of Paradise Lost, for instance, Milton, ended up with the Pickman family. So how, how and when did that happen? So I think that there are probably some really thick ties with Salem white elites. And is this a, is this a, uh, uh, is this a path you're going to continue exploring? Are you, are, are, are you now... Are you are you in for the whole story? <laughs> I could be, uh, as you know. I'm right now. I'm developing a website of w- that would accompany the article. <clears throat> That's where my energies are on transcribing 
the key documents in the what I call the Middleton dossier, all these legal papers I found, because I want people to be able to challenge my interpretation and to pick up clues and do research. Um, so that'll occupy me in the next couple of months. We haven't yet launched that website, but we hope to soon. Uh, so, But I think that a natural extension of that is to document John Peter's life as much as, and his brothers, as much as we can. And that means collaborating and building on Vin Coretta's w wonderful work. Uh, and I'm going to just sort of see where that leads me. You know, what the literary scholars are most eager for is the missing second volume of poetry. And we know it existed. And we know that Peters tried to sell it both to, to, pro, to get it to be published by a publisher, both before Phyllis died and after. There's been a recent discovery at the American Antiquarian Society of a letter from 1791 that says that Peters, it indicates he had retrieved the volume, which he said he had lost. And he advertised for his, this lost volume right after Phyllis's death. And it indicates that he'd gotten hold of it. Now he was prepared to publish it with Isaiah Thomas, the fa famous printer in Worcester. But that never happens either. So what? So does that? What happened to the to the manuscript? And so I, I end the piece by uh, my article by saying maybe this new these new findings about their complicated lives in Middleton and Salem, where they he had to go to court often, and maybe he sold some of her books to Salem booksellers. Could that be a clue <clears throat> to where the missing manuscript is? So I think you've just sent hundreds of people to bookstores in Salem now searching the shelves to see. That's hope. <laughs> indeed. Well, Nina Dayton, this is the, thank you for spending time with us and telling this just fascinating story of an archival discovery that, uh, wow. How wonderful that it was you who discovered this with your background as a legal historian. You know, that the often what you see depends on, on what you bring to the page. And I think uh, it is remarkable that you were the person who stumbled onto, the, not stumbled onto, but yeah. who realized in reading this document for one thing, that it was a clue into something else that was so important. So... Thank you for your excellent work. Thank you, Walt. It was a pleasure to talk with you about this, and we'll see where future scholarship goes. You have certainly just blown open the doors for people to follow and uh, bring new history to light. So thank you so much. Thank you, Walt. Thanks for listening. You can read Professor Dayton's prize-winning article, Lost Years Recovered, John Peters and Phyllis Wheatley Peters in Middleton, published in the September 2021 edition of the New England Quarterly by visiting the link at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. And for great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. Get a daily dose of Connecticut history at todayincthistory.com. This episode was produced by Walter Woodward, that's me, who hopes you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.